You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP: Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging. Welcome back to another episode of Senior Rx Radio. We are your hosts, Dr. Veronica Riera Gilly and Dr. Michelle Lamb. We are excited to be joined today by Dr. Buffy Lloyd Krejci. She is one of the foremost authorities on infection prevention and control in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. She's a frequent contributor and interview source for national and trade press concerning infection prevention and control and mitigation. With more than 20 years of healthcare and public health experience, Dr. Buffy's data-driven approach is hands-on and collaborative. She has worked with the CDC and other organizations on infection control studies and research, such as the Arizona Emergency Preparedness Infection Grant, the Institute of Health, and Project ECHO, a hub-and-spoke knowledge sharing network to support nursing home leadership during COVID-19. Dr. Buffy is the CEO and founder of IPC Well, which is headquartered in the Phoenix metropolitan area and is devoted to mitigating infectious diseases and inappropriate antibiotic prescribing in all healthcare settings to reduce adverse events, infections, antibiotic resistance, readmissions, and death. So thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here today. We first met you in person at our annual meeting in San Antonio, and you were one of our keynote speakers, and you presented information on your book, Broken. So would you tell us more about that book and the process of writing it? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I never intended to write a book in the middle of a global pandemic, but what happened was as an epidemiologist, infection preventionist supporting nursing homes across the country, I was seeing the same story, whether I was in Arizona or Texas or Michigan, I was in hundreds of nursing homes, helping boots on the ground, supporting the staff, really helping them to make, mitigate this, the infection, COVID. And I just kept hearing the same story over and over and over again, really by the encouragement of a colleague, encouraged me to write about it and to share it, to create public awareness and so that we can actively work on changing and fixing the this broken system that we're navigating within long-term care. Thanks, Dr. Buffy. Gosh, great timing for the types of services that you provide and the needs of our community. So on behalf of senior care pharmacists, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'd like to start with a bit more lighthearted question about your experiences in nursing homes. I've consulted in nursing homes for about five years, and I have some great memories of, for example, Johnny Cash impersonator or elementary (laughs) students coming in and singing Christmas carols. Your book mentions some wee bowling. Could you just share before we dive into the COVID crisis, you know, perhaps one of your favorite nursing home memories? Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it was, I guess, just collectively being able to go in and just see the residents thriving with and the healthcare workers, you know, being seeing them like you described, you know, participating in activities, singing songs, just the the love that surrounded the environment. I think for me, 
my personally, I love interacting one-on-one with the residents. And, you know, I've had a resident ask me if I was a member of the peanut butter club before. And I was like, no, but I love peanut butter. And, you know, which is having those one-on-one conversations. It really is heartfelt to me. And it comes from a personal experience of both my grandparents had lived out their days in a long-term care facility. And and so whenever I'm on site, I just remember them and think about them. And um, I feel closer to my own grandparents, I think, when I'm on site in the nursing homes. Dr. Buffy, that's a, a sweet memory. I know I've gotten at least one marriage proposal <laughs> during my time. I think it was written in crayon, but I certainly have fond memories. Yes, yes. Well, I'll dive in with another question. So we'll get a little bit more serious now. From what I can tell with your time in infection prevention and control, you've really been quite the leader and it has not been without its experience of frustration. A couple that really stand out in in the book is when you've really put out a call for help and been ignored. So some examples were, you know, trying to get PPE personal protective equipment early and not getting a great response from the the health department or the story you relate about towels not being washed properly at the highest temperature and and just not getting a good response from the environmental service company. What advice do you have for healthcare professionals that see a problem in a nursing home or their practice site? And how do we balance being assertive for our patients and not really crossing that line to aggressive? What tips do you have for communication in those situations? Well, it's really important that we look at every single individual in the nursing home, whether they're the janitor or working in the kitchen, or they're the nurse or the administrator or the owner of the building. We need to look at each and every individual as integral to the operation, and we need to treat every individual as such. You know, as far as getting what we need, we need to empower our workforce to speak up and to create an environment that is conducive for them. You know, you you described the situation where the housekeeper basically had two towels to clean an entire hallway. And when we went to get more towels, she was basically yelled at by her supervisor. And it took me escalating it to the administrator to be able to get her what she needed. And the administrator was like, no problem, we can do this. So there's this barrier in between her and and the administrator, obviously. But the one thing that she had said to me was, you know, Buffy, I just come in, I put my head down. I don't want to cause trouble. I don't want to, I don't want to create waves. But the consequences of that was that she wasn't getting what she needed. And therefore the entire environment of care was being contaminated. So we really need to create a culture of safety. You know, we talk about a culture of safety for our patients. We need to create a culture of safety for our workers as well, because it's not always in that case. As far as public health, they're kind of two separate issues. None of us really were ready for this pandemic and public health included. I mean, the stockpile of PPE that that was at the national level was 10 years old. It was expired. Like as a country, we were not ready. So to think that our nursing homes were ready, they weren't ready either. And so I think for me, you know, it was me just feeling that effects. You know, many of us felt that effects where we're reaching out to our public health, which was our 
proper protocol. And we were basically told like, there's nothing we can do. And that's terrifying in this situation. And so I think it challenges us to, we have to be prepared. Every nursing home needs to be prepared at an individual level. We can't simply rely on and think that, you know, the supplies are going to be there through public health because as we learned, they weren't. So I think it's kind of a call to action to each individual healthcare facility to be proactive and have those protocols in place and and be prepared for another outbreak or another pandemic. I mean, we, we always need to have be prepared for that. Thank you, Dr. Buffy. That's a great tip that it's not necessarily the consulting pharmacist as the sole voice of the residents, that really empowering the staff and in each facility to predict what they need and work to make it happen. Great tip. Thank you. We have to be proactive. And that's really my mission. And really the reason I even started my company in 2017 was infection prevention and control, antibiotic stewardship. This is all preventative work. And it's also not very popular to be preventative. We're very reactive in long-term care where it's kind of whack-a-mole. You know, we fix one thing and then something else pops up. And so we're busy fixing what's popping up and we're not really getting ahead of the game and being preventative. And that's, that's really where we need to shift as an industry to prevent the harms from occurring in the first place and, and to be prepared. Thank you. Yes, that comment on prevention, it, it speaks to our whole healthcare system currently because as a whole, not just with infection prevention, we're not good at promoting preventative care and thinking before the problem happens, we're very reactive in many, many of our disease state managements. Correct. And it's not just long-term care either. It's the entire healthcare system. And and I think naturally as humans, we're not we're not necessarily like the most preventative, you know, like going to the doctor on preventative care and, and doing those, you know, your own prevention work. You know, it's more when we get sick, then we're, oh, now we need to take care of our health. So it, it really, I think naturally it's just difficult for us to think that way, but it's absolutely necessary, of course, within our, our healthcare system. Dr. Buffy, you mentioned the phrase antimicrobial stewardship. Could you talk more about that and any tips for our consulting pharmacists that are helping a new facility create programs? Sure. Yeah, you know, this in uh, long-term care, there was a federal mandate to have an antibiotic stewardship program. 2016, the final rule came out and I and it was required in 2018 to have that antibiotic stewardship program. So if we really put that in context, that really wasn't that long ago that this That's requirement right. came into play. So for the consulting pharmacist, what's really important to understand, probably more now than ever, is that we have incredibly young infection preventionists as far as their expertise within the long-term care facilities. And they're often given the infection prevention and control program, which includes antibiotic stewardship. Many times these infection preventionists are assigned this role. They didn't necessarily want it. As a pharmacist, you proactively went to school, you chose this career, this is what you want to do. Many times the infection preventionists in a nursing home, because they have an RN or an LPN behind their name, they're given this job. And they don't have the training. They don't have the expertise. They didn't go to school for this. It's a very much a specialty and they don't have you know what they need to be successful. And so this is really where you can come in and partner with them and lead the way and lead this program. 
And also since, you know, the, during the pandemic, antibiotic stewardship completely went out the window. Nobody had time for that. And so it's really important to get back in there, to have the conversations. If you're not a part of, or maybe even the facility doesn't even have an antibiotic stewardship monthly meeting, or it should be a monthly meeting. I mean, really, you know, being involved in that is integral to their success because your expertise and training is going to help them learn and understand what they don't know. and. Time and time and time again, this is what I hear is, is that they need their pharmacy consultant involved in this, this program. And so I would say without a pharmacy consultant, this program has very little opportunity to be successful. And also the medical director needs to be very integral to this program. But it's a huge program needed. I don't even like we we kind of separate them. We separate infection prevention and control as one program, antibiotic stewardship is another program. And really you can't have one without the other. And so we really need to stop talking about them as separate and looking at them as the same program because they truly are. Great reminder. And and thank you also talking about the importance of the pharmacy consultant and team going to those monthly meetings and involving the medical director. Great reminder. Yeah, it's a great reminder also about collaboration. And a big theme of your book that we noticed was shifting from punitive measures into collaborative models. Can you speak to more of what you see coming in the future for how we can have more collaboration between different disciplines to help protect residents in the future? You know, I'm very bold about this. And again, when I wrote my book, I didn't know there was going to be three chapters on the regulatory process, but it was needed and it is needed to talk about because historically the way we have gotten bad care or challenges fixed within our nursing homes is through citations. And what I am here to say in my experience of, like I said, going into hundreds of facilities, I, I supported just so many different facilities with 2567s, that's their citations, is what happens is when there's more funding for state surveys, and that has been the kind of the historical measure, like we're going to have more funding to have more surveyors go in and, and look at what's going on wrong. Well, when we have more funding in that area, the surveyors and the, the state licensing agencies almost have an obligation to demonstrate that they're effectively using those dollars. And how do they do that is by issuing citations. So from my experience, when there's additional dollars, as there was during the pandemic, and that's a whole nother issue that was completely inappropriate from what I saw, there was over $80 million funded for more state surveys in the middle of an emergency. And what I saw was surveyors coming on site and being incredibly nitpicky. I mean, one of my chapters is called Gotcha because that's what it felt like. It felt like, you know, in the middle of this crisis, when half of the staff was gone because they were sick or they quit because it was during a COVID outbreak is when the surveyors would come on site. Then they were during the middle of a crisis. They have a survey process. It's like if your house is aflame and you have a fire having your your regulations come on site and check to see if you know the fire alarm was working it doesn't make sense that needs to be done before and maybe after but not during an emergency because of course you're going to find things that are wrong during an emergency 
And so what I hope and my, my ask and what I'm petitioning for and, and really asking our political leadership to look at is what if we had additional funding? Well, you know, what if we, that $80 million had gone towards collaboration, you know, people coming on site and supporting and helping versus just punishing and I do believe, and I, and I know we need regulations a hundred percent without them, things go, you know, a whole different direction. So we need them. We need that accountability, but we also need funding and support to help. So that's, you know, one of the things that my company does. And, and actually this is what CMS is doing. I mean, my work is funded through CMS is being able to go on site and support the nursing homes and show them what they're doing wrong. And, and so I'm just, I'm asking like, let's invest more in that and help them instead of just like, let's, instead of just adding hundreds of millions of dollars towards the survey process, which to be frank, doesn't really create lasting change. And I'll just add a little bit more to that. You know, when a nursing home has a citation, they have 10 days to show compliance. If you have a long history of doing something wrong, it takes longer than 10 days to fix it. So on paper, it might look like you fixed it. Maybe you can, you know, get the staff in shape. So if surveyors come back on site, you can demonstrate it's fixed, but is it really fixed? And and I, what I've observed, the answer is no, it's not long lasting. So we need, we need long lasting funding for support and collaboration, not just, you know, here's a, you know, $50,000 fine, you better fix it. And then so they show that it's fixed, but it's really not. I mean, it's like if your doctor tells you you need to lose 20 pounds because you have, you know, high blood pressure, that can't be done in 10 days. It takes time. And it's it's kind of the same concept. So I'm asking for more collaboration, more support. Our healthcare workers, our staff, they appreciate it. They appreciate having people come on site and support them and help them versus just surveyors pointing out everything they're doing wrong. And it really creates an atmosphere of collaboration and and better care. Great point, Dr. Buffy. I know I was really struck in your book about... Now, I will say I have worked with some great surveyors that are not only there to help, but to teach. And I'm so grateful for some I've met. I was a little struck by the description of one that you talked about that wore nylons and wasn't really able to put on her own PPE. And then some of the facilities get tagged for upside down masks. So just really a disconnect between what's happening and how we can actually help these residents. Yeah, it's there is uh, it's very subjective. And I also talk about the book. I talk about how I'm not like, again, I'm not against I'm not against surveyors. I'm not against regulation but I demonstrate the inconsistency. So I, like I had described as well, like you said, like one facility might have gotten tagged. I, I know for certain one facility got tagged because two nurses were sharing a pen and they didn't disinfect it once they passed it to the next person. I mean, you know, it's kind of things like that. Whereas another building I was actually on site helping the day surveyors were on site, almost every single staff member had cut their straps to their N95 respirator because they weren't fitting properly. And I I mean, for sure a tag and even rightfully so a tag because they're not being worn the right way, but they didn't get tagged because the surveyors were more lenient. So it's like we need more of a standard practice. 
and more training also for the surveys. Because I also describe the challenges the surveyors have. You know, the training isn't what it used to be. You know, I interviewed the Bureau Chief of Arizona. I interviewed a former, the former Bureau Chief as well as surveyors. And, you know, they don't have the time to actually do a really thorough survey either. So it becomes kind of cherry picking the small things to show that they are doing their job effectively. And from my understanding, I was told that, and I'm not sure when you had that experience, but I was told that I'm kind of doing air quotes here in the olden days, the surveyors used to be able to teach and help. The information I received was that they're really not allowed to do that anymore. And they're not allowed to give advice because if anything goes wrong in the facility, then they can be held liable for that. So I don't know if that varies state to state. That was the information I was provided and have been provided by multiple states. So it's kind of like they used to be able to, but they can't now. So, you know, I, I do think that if we had surveyors coming in and were more helpful, the overwhelming consensus I get is it's just kind of this more bullying system, punitive. They're just, they're not really friendly. I've experienced that myself. And we need to change that. You know, we need to reach our hand out. And, and so for all the surveyors listening out there too, you know, the ones that are, are really supportive, I appreciate that because that's really what our nursing home staff need. Nobody wants to come to work and, and just kind of be looked down upon for things that they do wrong. But at the same time, we need to fix those areas as well. I agree. I know a few months into my time as a consultant, I stopped using my clipboard because I found, you know, walking around with the clipboard, even just to take notes, I could kind of see people sort of stiffen up as I would walk through the facility. I did the same thing. (laughs) I did the same thing. And one of the hardest parts about my job is getting people to trust me. You know, I have to earn their trust within the first few minutes of walking in the door because they don't, they don't trust that anything that they show me or talk to me about is going to get them in trouble. And so I have to demonstrate to them that I'm here to help them. And usually that happens by me starting to coach them and provide education and, you know, just connecting really on a heart to heart level. So they know like, oh, she really is here to help. But I did the same thing. I stopped carrying a clipboard because it was just very intimidating to the staff. And You know, I'm not interested in the right answers. I'm interested in knowing exactly what's happening as far as their practices so that true change can happen and that we can fix what's broken and create that environment that is going to promote safety and health for the residents and the healthcare workers. I love that you continue to show how you want to improve these collaborations and improve the compassion and empathy that goes into the care and even into the survey process. And one of the quotes that I have from your book that I I just found really impactful was one of your responses to one of the nurses. And you said, we need to work on getting you some PPE and a different process for reusing it so that you don't recontaminate yourself. And I thought that was a wonderful way to say, we have a deficiency, but let's work on finding the solution instead of just telling you what's wrong and moving on, which is what the surveyors seem to do. And it seems like our surveyors might be in a really good position if they had better training to provide some of this coaching on how to improve these deficiencies. That might be a better use of our dollars is improving the training of our surveyors to provide some of this coaching. What do you think of that? Yeah, I love that. I mean, from when I had talked to a prior bureau chief, Miss Sylvia, I talk about her in the book, and she talked about how when she was 
training to be a surveyor, you know, it was, it was very intensive, including like in person for a certain amount of time. And then she had to shadow a surveyor for a long time before she was ever allowed out on their own. And now a lot of the training is, is online, it's remote and, you know, they just don't get that level of training that they used to. And so, you know, their budgets have probably been cut and even, you know, it's hard position to fill as well. It's a workforce, you know, like every other, it's difficult. And so, yeah, we need to invest in their training. And I 100% agree with the added training of, you know, emotional intelligence with empathy and compassion. You know, I have infection preventionists that work for me and, and they go on site too. And the number one aspect that I look for when hiring my own staff is that they have empathy and compassion and understanding because this is what our nursing homes need. It is an incredibly difficult environment to work in and they don't get the support. They're running short staff nearly all the time. It's just incredibly challenging. And so for us to come in and kind of do finger pointing and wagging at them and, you know, basically pointing out everything they're doing wrong versus partnering with them, showing up with love, showing up with compassion. I tell my staff, look, if, if all they get from us today, the staff we work for, if all they get is that we appreciate them and we, and they, they feel valuable. I mean, we've done our job for the day. I mean, of course we're there to help them with infection control, but I can't tell you how many people we've made cry because they're like, nobody tells us that we're doing a good job. Nobody thanks us. And we make a point to do that because I want this workforce strong. They're caring for this incredibly vulnerable population. And we need to build up the workforce that is caring for them. Because if they're strong, then the care they deliver will be good. If they're not strong, then their care is not going to be good. I mean, it's that simple. And I don't know why we've missed that as as a system, but we have, you know, it's like we pay them the least amount that we can. We work them the shortest staff possible that, you know, just stretched as thin as possible. Like we have to look at why the care is the way it is and we need to fix why it is. And that has to start with the staff. If we invest in our staff, we invest in that, that process, we're going to have better care. We're going to have better outcomes. That's a great reminder, Dr. Buffy. And I love that you bring in, it's not just the technical side for training, but really the emotional intelligence side and communication skills. I would like to pivot and ask you a bit of a technical question. I really want to compliment you on your description of the CDC reporting on on the virus and your description on page 40 about airborne transmission versus droplet versus contact versus indirect contact. I also enjoy in the glossary, you, you really take a deep dive into some of these bugs that we might watch out <laughs> for, like Citrobacter, C. diff, and influenza. So my question for you is, are there any bugs out there that still keep you up at night? When we move past COVID-19, which we're not quite there yet, what else do you worry about? Well, as you read in my book and people that know me, the reason I even started my company, IPC Well, was because of the number of infections that are occurring in long-term care. The estimates say one to three million infections a year, which result in 380,000 deaths. And to break it down even smaller, that's over a thousand people dying every day from serious infections in nursing homes. 
That was before the pandemic. That's the best research we have. We don't have great data. We don't have great surveillance and that I'm a huge advocate for that. We need better national surveillance. And, you know, that's one of the battles I've, I fight and I advocate for, but you know, the multi-drug resistant organisms, we have a lot of those super bugs, as you described, Canada auris is making its way through CRE, carbapenem resistant enterobacter say, you know, we have these organisms that are antibiotic resistant, meaning that the antibiotics don't work for them. And so this is where antibiotic stewardship ties into that. There's so many inappropriate, up to 70% of antibiotics prescribed are inappropriate. And this is leading to resistance. And then this is creating more of these superbugs. So it's, it's not just a national threat, it's a global threat. And we have to take it seriously. And that's where the antibiotic stewardship program is so, so critical in that we have to really, with our clinicians, pay attention to when we're prescribing antibiotics and make sure that they meet criteria because we don't want to wake up in a day and age, which which we're seeing this is happening with these resistant organisms where our antibiotics don't work anymore, where we die from simple infections because our antibiotics aren't working. And so this is, this is real call to action. And this is where we have to invest more time and support in our long-term care facilities, because I have not met (laughs) one nursing home that says, that every single one of their residents, when they go to the emergency room, they come back on an, an antibiotic for UTI. And, and so why is that? And we need to look at that and we need to pay attention to that. Why, why are we just culturing everybody? And why are we putting people on antibiotics when they're asymptomatic? We need to, and I say we as a, as a healthcare industry, as a, you know, the physicians, prescribing these antibiotics, we need to pay more attention to this and we need to make it a priority. And so in long-term care, back to your original question, we don't have great surveillance on the superbugs or the actual healthcare associated infections. We need to get that. We need to be able to implement surveillance. The CDC's National Healthcare and Safety Network is a tool. We're starting to use it in long-term care. We're not using it to its capacity, which we really need to, to really understand it. And, and I say that because that's a requirement for the hospitals. And this is how every year there's a CDC report that comes out on the progress that the hospitals are making on reducing healthcare associated infections. We need that same process for our long-term care be, so that we can start reducing those infections. That's such a good reminder that the concern is not just a novel infection such as the coronavirus COVID-19 was, but just keeping an eye on the bugs we already know about and treating them correctly to prevent that uh, resistance. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, you read in my book how I was frustrated when we started hearing about this, you know, novel virus over in China. I was mad because I'm like, nobody's paying attention to all of these infections in nursing homes already. Like there is not a focus. And so I was just mad because I was like, we need to focus on this. And Unfortunately, I think, you know, there's still not a huge focus. And just like what you kind of asked, like, what other superbugs should we be, be looking for? We should be looking for what's been there and then how we can improve upon it and how we can reduce the risk of those infections. We are nearing the end of our time. Is there anything that you would like our listeners to 
know about or any other topics that we wanted to cover before we wrap up today? I just really want to, you know, talk about the last few chapters of my book are really about solutions. And I talk about the need for dedicated infection preventionists within the long-term care industry. It is now a federal rule to have a part-time infection preventionist on site. And that's very subjective, what's even considered part-time. But I would just really advocate that we need even a full-time infection preventionist because then they're going to have dedicated time to really understand the specialty. You know, I talked earlier about how specialized infection prevention and control and antibiotic stewardship is. And so we need that individual. We need that healthcare worker to have that time dedicated and devoted to actually studying and learning and helping to reduce the risk of those infections. If you don't have a dedicated infection preventionist, you're, you're just going to be staying on that hamster wheel and, and not going to be making progress forward. You know, the other area I talk about is increasing staffing ratios. There's a lot of political push for that right now. We'll see where that lands. But you know, clearly, you know, the more manageable patient load that we can provide is going to result in better care. You know, we need to work on the regulatory system, as we've talked about, and, and really being sure that we provide better quality and training to our surveyors, as well as really look at how we're treating the nursing homes and really, again, pushing for that collaborative versus punitive or having more of a balance, you know, in to be able to support our nursing homes. And then finally, you know, to just the regular consumers, you know, I, I have a, my last chapter in the book is all about the, the consumers and really how they can advocate for better care for their loved ones, some things to look for, how to get involved in the patient council, resident council meetings, and really how their voice matters and is absolutely critical to protecting their loved one, advocating for their loved one, and ensuring that the, the care is being delivered that is appropriate and of high quality. Thank you, Dr. Buffy. Great reminder on that call to action, especially you, you made this in point in your book as well, of really to invest in the staff. I know when I was working in the nursing homes, turnover was always an issue, especially in April, and we called it the green flu. And that would mean that when staff would receive their tax refund, that they would leave and find a better job. So it's certainly a, a tough issue. Thank you again for your time here. How can our listeners find you and stay in touch? Yeah, they can reach me. My website is IPCWell. And they could also actually email me at Dr. Buffy, D-R-B-U-F-F-Y at IPCWell. And check out my book. It's on Amazon and love to hear from you. I want to just make a quick note that I'm working on the second book that's really geared towards the consumers because consumers really need these tools. You know, I thought we can't wait 20 years for the system to be completely fixed. People need this help now. And so my second book is really about how to navigate within the system. And so I, I'm happy to connect with consumers and healthcare workers and anybody that would be happy to lend their voice. Um, this is a team effort. And the more we work together to create sustainable change, the better our chances of doing that. Well, thank you again, Dr. Buffy. Veronica, any last thoughts? No, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your time and your expertise. And I'm excited for many of our listeners to go and pick up your book and read it if they haven't already, because there were so many wonderful gems and takeaways in it. 
Yes, it was great. Again, for our listeners, that is Broken, How the Global Pandemic Uncovered a Nursing Home System in Need of Repair and Heroic Staff Fighting for Change. Thank you again, Dr. Buffy. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.